as we do that. So again, good morning and grateful to be with you today. Great passage for us, as Austin said, as Pastor Chuck said, out of the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And you can turn there now, Ecclesiastes 3. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one that looks like this under the seat in front of you. And it's on page 319 of those Bibles. Uh, Ecclesiastes is not always the easiest book to find. So if you'll find Psalms and Proverbs in the middle of your Bible, just a few pages to the right, and you'll find the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And we'll read our passage in just a moment. But first, imagine that you have a friend who's never seen the movie Gladiator. And he joins you two-thirds of the way through the movie, right when the protagonist takes off his helmet and says to the emperor of Rome, my name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the north, general of the Felix Legions, loyal servant to the true emperor Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered, husband, or murdered, murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. Now, what would your friend think? Well, he'd know there's something grand going on. There's some, some big conflict between two powerful people, but he'd have no way of knowing that earlier in the movie, the cowardly Commodus had killed the true emperor, and he'd have no idea where the story is heading, nor where it will end. Now, just to balance things out for the ladies, or maybe just for my wife and my daughter, imagine you have a friend who's never read Pride and Prejudice. So, never seen any of the countless film adaptations. And she drops in two-thirds through one of the films, and it's raining, and Mr. Darcy is proposing marriage to Elizabeth. And they're bantering back and forth about several misunderstandings that they've had earlier in the movie. And then finally, Elizabeth says, from the first moment I met you, your arrogance and conceit, your selfish disdain of the feelings of others, made me realize that you were the last man in the world I could ever be prevailed upon to marry. Ouch. Now, your friend would know that there must be a history between these two people. They must uh, know that there's some romantic chemistry uh, that, that's going on and that they have a history together. But she wouldn't know the exact history, nor where the story was headed, nor how it will end. And so it is with our lives as well. We're in the middle of a grand story, and we see bits and parts of it. And honestly, we understand very little of the whys and wherefores of our lives. But just as Jane Austen and whatever literary genius wrote the screenplay for Gladiator, just as they had something in mind, they had a beginning, a middle, and an end, they knew the grand story that they were trying to tell. And in a similar manner, God knows the story that he's telling. He's the author of a grand story. And we don't see the big picture. We try to make sense of why things happen the way they do, but we struggle with that sometimes. So we ask questions like, why did I have to lose my job? Or why are we in the middle of a pandemic? Or why does my friend have the blessing of a romantic relationship when I don't? But if we could just trust the author, if we could just see that he is a good authority, that he loves us and he has a plan that is ultimately for our good and for his glory, if we could only trust that, then how much better would our lives be? Well, today we're going to see one of the most read pieces of scripture, one of the most popular uh, even many who have not read the Bible have, have heard this before. It's been turned, no pun intended, it's been turned into a popular song written by Pete Seeger. Some of you are already singing it in your head. Some of you will be as we 
as we go through this passage in just a moment. So this is where we're headed. We're going to read the first half of, of our passage for today. That's through verse 8. And we're going to look at the tyranny of time. And then we're going to see that there is a God of time. And then we'll read verses 9 through, through 15. And we'll see that we're caught between time and eternity. And finally, we'll focus on Christ. And I, I think that we'll find that we must trust God's good and sovereign authority and enjoy the gifts that he has for us, no matter the season of life that we're in. So again, a well-known passage, often read at funerals. It's in greeting cards, very popular. We're going to struggle with it today and try to see what God has for us with this. Uh, one of our members, Caden Skinner, is going to come on up and read for us Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8, and also verse 11. She's one of our members, one of our youth, and also my daughter. So please read for us. Okay. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. And then verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Great. Thanks. All right. So a beautiful and familiar passage, a lot for us to learn and apply. All right, the first, uh, we're going to talk about the tyranny of time. So notice that in these first eight verses, that there is a series of 14 pairs. So taken as a whole, they're meant to cover the gamut of the human, human life experience. Notice that there are good things, laughing and dancing, for example, and then there's bad things, weeping and mourning. So our human lives are not one-dimensional. We experience good times and bad times. We experience joy and sorrow, love and loss, war and peace. And then certainly in these past 18 months, we've seen that there's a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. And if, if the preacher was writing this today, he'd say there's a time to embrace and a time to social distance. But anyway, all through this, time marches on. So when we're laughing, we're hardly aware that someday we'll also be mourning. And when we're celebrating the joys in life, we're not at all focused on the truth that there will be great sorrows. But all of life is good and bad. And through it all, time marches on. And really, isn't that a good thing? Variety is good. As one author put it, who would wish for a perpetual spring, a time to plant, but never a time to pick? So just briefly, there's, uh, I think it's helpful to define some of the things that are in this, in this passage that may be a little bit difficult for us to understand because time has changed, time has marched on, uh, some cultural things are different. So look at verse 5, what's with the stones? That's kind of weird, I think. Uh, well, casting away stones and gathering up refers to the practice in ancient times of when you're at war with somebody or when you just don't like your neighbor, you throw stones into their yard to make it hard for them to grow produce. So it's a wartime practice. Makes it hard for them to cultivate. And then gathering up stones means it's a time to recover from that wartime practice. So throwing stones, gathering them up. And then in verse 7, 
A time to tear is referring to the ancient practice of tearing your garments while you're in grieving, while you're mourning. And then a time to sow is a time to recover and to, to stop grieving and to, to move on with your life from that time of your life. And as one author put it, this poem reveals the great absurdity of life because each activity cancels out the other. There's 14 positives and 14 negatives. So we, we see continued this, this notion of, of vanity, of, of meaninglessness that's been carried on through the first two chapters. But notice also here the, the communal nature of these pairs. Almost every one of them involves the connections with other people that occur between birth and death. We like to think that we mark our lives by the rotation of the earth around the sun, and we do. But what really, what really marks our lives is the relationships that we have with other people. Our lives are marked and counted by major events. I'm, I'm a son, and I'm a father, and I'm a co-worker, I'm a supervisor, I'm a roommate, I'm a husband, I'm a child of God just to name a few of those. And all of those had a beginning in time. All of those will have an ending in time, except for child of God. We mark our lives by the steady beat of relationships with others every bit as much as we mark our lives by the steady beat of the clock. And further, we were made to live in community. Ultimately, we were made to commune with our Creator. And for those of us who are believers, we'll one day do that throughout eternity. We'll see God as he is forever, and we'll be in his presence forever, living in eternal communion with the one who paid a dear price for us through his death, and through his resurrection. But it's not just God. We, we were made for community with others as well. Most of these 14 pairs, really perhaps all of them, occur in community with other people. The good and the bad of these pairings reveal that we are a communal people. We can't be born without community. We can't dance without others. We can't mourn unless there's a community. We can't war unless there's an enemy and often someone to protect as well. And the tyranny of time, the steady, unstoppable drumbeat of time marks all of our relationships. And that leads us to our, our next big topic from this passage. We really see this in verse 11, is that there is a God of time. Now, if we go back to the Old Testament book of Genesis, just after God had nearly destroyed the whole earth uh, by flood because of our sinful disregard for God, God made a promise that he would never again destroy the world, the whole world, by flood. And in Genesis 8:22, God said to Noah, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Now, from that passage and from Ecclesiastes that we just read, we see that God is orderly. God is precise. God is not disorganized. He's not chaotic. He's not arbitrary or capricious. God orders the world so that things happen at just the right time. There is seed time and harvest. There is summer and winter and day and night. And further, God is involved in this orderly state. He didn't just set the world spinning and then, and then go skip stones across a lake in some other galaxy. No, Jesus sustains his creation. We, we just read Colossians as a church this summer. In, in chapter 1, verse 17, we read, 
He, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus holds all of his creation together. This, this world, his, his very creation, our, our own heartbeat, he holds together. In him all things hold together. And we see something similar in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. We read that he, Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of his power. Time doesn't exist on its own. If God decided to end time as we know it, then time would end. There is a God of time and nothing happens by chance. And the great reformer Martin Luther said, you cannot live any longer than the Lord has prescribed, nor die any sooner. So look again at verses 2 and following. Martin Luther said that about death, but similar things could be said about our birth as well. You didn't determine when you would be born, where you'd be born, who you'd be born to, or what your purpose in being born was. We have absolutely no control over that. God did all of that, and the same will be said about all of our deaths. God numbers our days. And then further in verse 2, we see, and following, we see that God ordains the seasons of the year, how much rain falls, how much sun hits the earth. This poem reminds us that God can't be taken by halves. He is complete. He's not one-dimensional. We can't just focus on the good things that he gives us. There is good and bad that is brought into our lives. So we, we don't serve an either-or God. We serve a both-and God. We serve a God who created time and who reigns over every aspect of it. And his timing is always right. So what do we do with these first eight verses? Well, just a few things in, in review, a few things that I think we can learn from this. The first is that there is a time for everything, for good things and bad things. All things have their given time and place in God's economy. Secondly, all of our time is God-ordained. He orchestrates and sustains everything, from the slightest flutter of the butterfly to the explosions of supernovas. Everything is orchestrated and sustained by God. Third, we mark time and events in community. We were made for community. Our very lives are marked by the different roles that we have and the very different relationships that we each have with one another. Fourth, we don't really have control over time or events in our lives. From our birth to our death, personal control is hard to grasp. Fifth, God is complete. He gives us good things and he allows bad things. In other words, he is sovereign and he's in total control over his creation. And sixth, God is not arbitrary. He has a purpose. He has a purpose for all that he does. And that purpose is ultimately to glorify himself and for the good of those who believe in him. So just a couple of lessons for us from, from these first eight versus a couple of applications. Uh, first, a very sobering lesson. And that's that we must all live our lives knowing that we are on borrowed time. Our time is not our own. There's a time to die. And we all have an expiration date. This should cause all of us to solemnly reflect. And for believers in Christ, the implication is that we should therefore live our lives for the cause of Christ. If we're not the God of time, if God is the God of time, then we should live our lives fully for the one who created time, the one who 
ordains and orchestrates and has purpose for all of our lives. And for the unbeliever in the room, or, or if you're watching online, this lesson should be most sobering of all for you. There's a time appointed for you to die. No one knows when that is. It's easy to think that we have control over that, or it's, it's I think, even more likely that we just don't even think about it. We don't even think about our, our coming death, that we are going to die. But no one knows when it's going to happen. And so let 2 Corinthians chapter 6 be an encouragement and a help to you. It says, working together with him, then we, believers in Christ, we are appealing to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. So I would encourage you to let this be your day of salvation. If you don't know Christ, let today be the day of salvation for you. All that's necessary is that you acknowledge that you're a sinner, that you're in need of him, and you turn from that sin and turn towards him as the only one who is able to save. Now there's dozens of people in this room who would love to talk with you about that. So after the service is over, we'd love for you to, to just turn to somebody and talk with them about this or talk to me. We'd love to share how this today can be the day of salvation for you. If you're not a believer in Christ. Now the second lesson for us from this is that we should make the best use of whatever time that we have. So we can't order our days. We don't, we're not, we don't know when we're going to die. So how do we make the best use of our time? Now we, we've all heard that, but what does it really mean to make the best use of your time? Well, I think the lessons from this passage can be really helpful for us as we seek to make good use of our time. For for example, if we recognize that we were made for community, then shouldn't we prioritize community in our lives? So just a, a quick and specific application. I'm just going to pick on one group of people, uh, but there could be any number of others that could be, uh, hopefully God will use this to apply it to your life if you're not a dad, but dads, I'm going to pick on you. Dads, don't give your best time to your workplace and leave just the scraps for your wife and your kids. Instead, we should prioritize the people that we live in community with. Now that doesn't mean that you should slack off at work. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't work hard um, at your workplace. We should work hard as unto the Lord and work for him. But don't work so long and so hard that you have nothing left at the end of the day to give to your wife and to your kids. Now, another application, if, if we know that God is complete and that we aren't to take him by halves, then that means that we shouldn't get too swallowed up by the bad events and situations in life. So yes, we should mourn. Yes, we should weep. But don't stay in those places forever. For everything, there is a season. And making the best use of our time means that we recognize that God will bring more into our lives than just our present state. One of, the, one of the great temptations and struggles in our lives today, I think, is to be very short-sighted, to think that the way I'm feeling right now is the way that I'm always going to feel, or my circumstance for today is the way that my circumstance is always going to be. So it's tempting that, to think that when we're sad and depressed, it's hard to see how we can be anything other than that. Or if we're happy and joyful, on the flip side, if, if we're happy and joyful, we very quickly forget the sadness of yesterday. But as one author put it, when we're dancing, most of us don't realize that we're creating memories with people whom we will one day mourn. 
And when we're weeping, we rarely think that in a few weeks' time we could be laughing again. We would be wise to be mindful of the truth that our circumstances are very often temporary. Time is fleeting. and Seasons change. And especially when we're down or depressed, remembering this truth can be so helpful for us. And then a, a final way that we make the best use of our time is to always seek after God. Always have a posture of submission to Him. Always have a willingness to learn and grow. So if God has a purpose for us in all of these times, then we should always be accepting of, of whatever it is that God brings into our lives. Whatever gift that He gives us. Um, Paul called our sufferings a gift. And, and just in a moment, when we read through verses 9 through 15, we'll see that word again. That everything God gives to us is a gift. That's, that's a difficult truth to believe. And it often seems as though God is silent in our struggles. But just because God seems silent doesn't mean that he's actually absent. Now, I'm sure that will leave some, some difficult questions for us, and hopefully we can answer those as we walk through verses 9 through 15. So let's, let's take a look there. Look at verse 9 and let's read. We read, what gain has, has the worker from his toil? Which is quite appropriate for Labor Day to be asking that question. What gain is the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. And he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. So here the, the preacher transitions from beautiful poetry to another thousand-ton question. What gain has the worker from his toil? Now, he's already asked that back in, in chapter 1, but this is, this is heavy stuff, a heavy question for us. So we went from beautiful poetry to soul-crushing question in just one moment. But perhaps you've asked that question before. Perhaps you, you're asking that question even this week. Given what we've heard from Ecclesiastes so far, I think we might dread the answer. Uh, it seems like, as we've read through first chapter and second chapter of Ecclesiastes, it's like the preacher is just heaping, uh, piling boulders onto our shoulders, one after another after another. But in a little bit of a surprise, we see that he just simply affirms that God is sovereign over all, that God is sovereign over time. It says that God has made everything beautiful in its time. So that may not be a, a heaping boulder, but let's think about that for a second. That, that's a little bit confusing, isn't it, that he would say that? It, it's, it's a hard pill to swallow, I think, that God has made everything beautiful in its time when your boyfriend just broke up with you or when you just lost your job or when you get that diagnosis that you never wanted or when your spouse dies. How can it be that God has made everything beautiful in its time? And if we go back up to verses 2 through 8, we see that there are a lot of ugly things in that, in that passage as well, in that poem. There's, there's hate, 
There's war. There's mourning and weeping. Very ugly, difficult things. Things that we would not consider to be beautiful at all. So how are we to understand this? Well, talking about these, these questions in community is often so much more helpful um, after you've heard a sermon like this. So I would really encourage you to, to go to your gospel community, go, with, go uh, talk with somebody that you serve with on Sunday mornings, share with them, talk this through. Uh, sometimes what you hear in the, in the pulpit, so to speak, is, is fleshed out in community as you talk with other people about this and try to work through this, these hard truths. But, but let me try to share a couple of truths with you about this that might be helpful. Uh, first, this verse reminded me of its, its corollary in the New Testament, Romans 8.28. Many of you are familiar with that. And Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. But again, how can all things work together for good when I'm suffering? Or when I see somebody that I love who is suffering? We'll take a look at the remainder of verse 11. It says, God has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Now, we, we may not like this answer, but this is true. We are time creatures, and God is not. We are finite, but God is infinite. And so if I'm suffering, I may not know the whys and the wherefores of why I'm suffering. And in many, many cases, I don't and never will. And that's because I'm finite, but God is infinite. I can't grasp the big picture. I'm not capable of understanding. But just like the friend who has dropped into the middle of, of pride and prejudice, I may not know where it's going, but the author does know. We cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Now, admittedly, that can be frustrating, but that's not bad. Rather, that's humbling to know that. Now, there, I, th I think you can all relate to this if you think about this. There have been several times in my life that I can see God brought something bad into my life. And on some of those occasions, years later, or months later, or weeks later, or days later, I can look back and I can see how there's something good that came out of that bad thing. There's something bad that came into my life, and God turned it into something good. And I hope you can relate to that. But I'm sure you can also relate to the fact that there are times that God brings something bad into my life, and I still don't know why that happened. I can't see something good that came from that, or at least not something that I'm satisfied with. And perhaps, again, you have similar experiences. But regardless of whether we can see the good that God brought out of those circumstances, we can always trust the author. Now listen, Jesus, Jesus is the perfect, loving, holy, compassionate, gentle Son of God. And He did not deserve to die. That was bad. What a horrible injustice. I think most people would agree. What a horrible injustice that Jesus would have to die. And yet now we can see the good that came from that. Something good that came from Jesus dying on the cross. So again, I would encourage you uh, to think through this. Sometimes we can see the good that God brings from the bad things that come into our lives, and sometimes we can't yet. But I would encourage you to talk with somebody around you about that. But remember that God is good, and the author didn't just write the story. He wrote himself into the story.
and he suffered and died for you so that you might have life. All right, let's take a look at the end of verse 11 again. It says that God has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So this word eternity is in stark contrast to what we've read in the first eight verses. In the first eight verses, 29 occasions we, we saw the word time used. So time's been mentioned over and over and over again, and now we see the word eternity. And the contrast that we're supposed to grasp is that there's more to life than what's under the sun or as, as verse 1 says, more to life than what's under heaven. Now that's the big key to this passage. I'll say it again. There's more to life than what's under heaven. So as believers in Christ, we are still time creatures. And there's a contrast with time. There's an eternity with God out there for us. So if eternity is this big, then time, our life, our time, we can't even measure it in the scale of eternity. Eternity with God is forever and ever and our lives are just a moment. So there's an eternity with God out there for us. Now, don't we long for better things than what we see in this time period? So yes, it's a slog, but there are also moments of joy. There are also moments that we are miserable as well, and we long for something better. And of course, like being dropped into the middle of a movie, we can't see the full picture of what's happened, or what's happening, or how our lives are going to end. But we must give ourselves over to trusting the one who is writing the story. And as one author said, we are trapped between time and eternity. And we must trust that God uses the details to work out a grander plan. Now, we, we just read that God put eternity into our hearts. Now, that's a big thing. Eternity is a big thing. That's a wondrous, that's a huge thing compared to our existence in time. So when that happens, what, what would happen if we don't trust the author? If we have this grand plan, this, this grand purpose, eternity in our hearts, and we don't trust the author? When we don't trust God, and eternity is in our, heart, in our hearts, and we go seeking to fulfill this grand purpose in some way other than what we were designed to fill it with God, so if we're, if we're not trusting God, if we're, if we're doing that sinfully, trying to fulfill a grand purpose sinfully, all we're going to find is frustration and ultimately emptiness. Now, I, I think a lot, not all, not all, but a lot of depression is because we're sinfully trying to fulfill the grand purpose that God has for us while doing so without God. Now, some, some of you know that I'm a psychologist, and, and most of the people that I see are Christians. I, I do see a few that are, that are non-believers, and I couldn't help thinking about this person that I saw a few years back as I was, as I was reading this. Uh, sometimes when people enter into your life or into, you, into your room, into the counseling room, you just know they have it. So whatever it is, they have it. You know they're going to be successful. Whatever it is that they're going to do in life, they're going to be successful. This, this guy came in. He was a, almost graduated from ASU. 21 years old, and he was talking to me about what his plan was for his life and what his purpose was. Again, not a believer, and um, kind of a strange, most people I see don't do this, but I, I saw him over the course of maybe four or five, six years, and I would just see him every nine months, year, he'd come back in to work something out, and he, in his chosen profession, he was working his way up the ladder, and he would come back in and tell me some things, and we'd work through some things, and, and that kind of thing, and um, as he got closer to the top of his profession, 
he would come back and he would say, the people that I, that I meet as I get higher and higher are miserable. They're um, so selfish and they're paranoid. They're paranoid of losing their power. And I won't tell you what his profession is, but you, you probably, some of you know, have seen his work. So 100 million people, 150 million people have seen what he does. And he, the last time he came back, he said, I've been chasing after that pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. I kept thinking I was gonna find it and I was gonna find, give me happiness and joy. And I, I finally got to the end of the rainbow and all I found was a leprechaun mooning me. <laughs> Never forget that line. It's a great way to describe, I think, that emptiness, that when you're trying to fulfill that eternal purpose that God has put in your heart, that grand purpose, you try to fulfill it and you don't find it. All you find is emptiness. So maybe a leprechaun mooning you gets you Maybe a, a famous theologian will get you all. I have a quote from a famous theologian now. St. Augustine famously said of God, you made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Our hearts were made for eternity, for something huge, and yet we, we, we find ourselves stuck in time for this moment. So what are we to do? We're stuck in time, we're made for eternity, and we're stuck in time. We'll look at verses 12 and 13. The, the clear answer for us who are stuck between time and eternity is to be joyful, to do good, to enjoy life, to work hard. And all of that should be done for the Lord and not to satisfy some grand purpose of your own making. Now that, that can admittedly be really depressing when we realize that nothing of what we do will last. But for the believer in Christ... They accept it as a gift that verse 13 says that it is. For God does nothing in vain. So why do we find it so hard to accept that as a gift? Well, the, the obvious answer is that we don't trust the author. We get so focused on our circumstances and on our life in this time that we forget our good God. We don't trust and we forget that God is sovereign over time. And that all of the pieces of our lives ultimately come, in, uh, come together in a way that God is glorified and it's for our good. It's better than any movie ending. So when we trust God, when we accept the season of life or the circumstance that God has for us as a gift from him, when we do that, God is glorified. And as a people who have been saved from our sin, that should give us joy. That is what we ought to live for, is to glorify God. Because we owe all to him. And as I was reflecting on this truth, I was reminded about a lesson, one of the, one of the kindest and uh, most gentle and most wise, most mature men um, that I know in my life taught me. He's, he's a widower. He's been a widower for, for 20 years, lived alone. Um, and he was telling me that he's lived alone for this length of time, but he has uh, an adult daughter and then a couple of, of grandkids that need a place to stay. And he has a home that they could stay in. And so he says, I know this is going to be difficult. I'm set in my ways. I'm used to living by myself. They're set in their ways. They're used to living by themselves, but I'm going to offer up my home to allow them to live with me for a time. He says he knows it's going to be difficult for everyone, and he actually used, I know this is just for a season of life. This is not forever. This is not for eternity. This is for a season of life. And he knows that he can lovingly endure the changes and knows that it will glorify God. So his years of walking with the Lord have shown him that for everything there is a season and that those seasons change. 
And even tough things can be used for God because God is good and he's gracious and he's kind and he's loving. So I, I pray that the Holy Spirit would apply this lesson to your life, the lesson that he is learning and is teaching that I mentioned a moment ago. Whether that's a lesson that you're going through in the pandemic with vaccines or masks or schools or businesses or the difficulties that you're finding in that, or if it's through a tough breakup or job difficulties or difficulties with um, uh, your kids and the way that they're behaving, whatever it is, may God help you to see that this is a season of your life and that our task is to trust him through that. And then verses 14 and 15 further reveals the purpose of it all. So take a look at verses 14 and 15 as we exist as time creatures. So we see again that God is sovereign. He is supreme over all. Nothing can be added to improve nor taken away. What he has done and designed is perfection, and the result is that we would fear before him. And that word fear is confusing, because that's not fear in, in a Friday the 13th, Jason kind of way, or, or fear in the way that my daughter is afraid of cockroaches. So not fear like that, but fear in the way that we should be revering him. We should be in awe of what he's done. So when you see an example of perfection, a beautiful sunset or a song that speaks the words just exactly the way that you'd want them to say, or a beautiful painting, when we, when we see perfection, we stand in awe and we're amazed. And we should be, for he has made everything beautiful in its time. Now, it's one thing to see perfection in a sunset or in a painting, and it's quite another to see it in a person. So let's spend our remaining time today just reflecting on that perfection in a person. So as we spend our last five minutes or so making ultimate sense of this, let's acknowledge that no one is perfect. No one is able to please God. No one, that is, but Jesus. And Jesus is the one who made the most use of his time, who is always right on time. So let's look. Glance back up at verses 2 through 8 as we see this together. Now, I think we could show all of these pairings as being about Jesus or how Jesus fulfills these, but we're just going to look at a few of them. So first, take a look at verse 2 that says, there's a time to be born. Now, from Scripture, we see how Jesus exemplified this in Galatians chapter 4, and we read there, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus was born at just the right time. Now, part of that must be that he was born into a political and a social climate, cultural climate, that allowed for, not just for his death, but also for the gospel to be carried out to all the world after his, his death and his resurrection. So we know that Jesus was born at just the right time. But further, we see in verse 3, it says there's a time to break down and a time to build up. And in Matthew 21, we see that when Jesus was at the temple and he saw the priests manipulating and gouging those who had come to make atonement for their sins, Jesus knew the right time to break, break it down. It says, Jesus entered the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and said, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. But not only did he know when to break things down, he also knew when to build things up. Earlier in Matthew, in chapter 16, 
we read that Peter confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responded that upon that confession of Christ, that he would build his church. And Jesus is continuing to build his church, person by person by person, to this day. Look at verse 4 again. It says that Jesus knew the right occasions to weep. Now, one of those occasions is in Luke 19, which says, when Jesus was looking over Jerusalem, it says, when he drew near, he saw the city, and he wept over it. Jesus wept over the lost souls that had heard the good news and yet were not believing in him, had rejected him. But Jesus also knew the right time to rejoice as well. Uh, aside from Jesus' use of, of humor in the Gospels that we see on occasion, even the man of sorrows would joyfully rejoice. We see that in Luke chapter 10. One of the places we see that is when he, when he was welcoming back the disciples who had come, sharing the good news, and he rejoiced with them that the good news had been shared. So additionally, Jesus knew when to plant. He knew when to uproot. He knew when to speak. He knew when to keep silent. And we can learn a lot from Jesus. And incidentally, and almost as an aside, there, there's so much hate in this world right now. 24-7 through social media, through traditional media, through uh, ugliness with coworkers, with neighbors, uh, even with our friends. But Jesus taught us how and who to hate, didn't he? He hated the effects of sin. He hated the devil and his deceptions. And in contrast, he had compassion even for his enemies. So much that we can learn from Jesus. Now we could go on and on showing that Jesus knew the right time for every matter under heaven. But let's end with this. Jesus knew there was a time to die. And we read more about that in Romans 5. We read, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus knew the right time to die. And he died for the ungodly, for his enemies, like you and me. We all had no hope without what, without what he accomplished on the cross and through his resurrection. God perfectly knew the right time for everything, and he still does. So think about how amazing it is that Jesus fulfilled all of these prophecies at just the right time. He met every need that his father told him to meet. There's this really cool discussion in 1 Peter about the angels, these wondrous beings, the angels looking into the mystery of the gospel and being amazed, looking into a God who came down from heaven into earth and did everything at the right time. And like those wondrous beings, we too should be amazed at the timing of God, amazed at the glory of the gospel, amazed at what he accomplished in his time under the sun, amazed at the one who is sovereign over all, amazed at the one who is the God of time, the one who orchestrates all for the praise of his glorious grace. So no matter whether you're mourning today or whether you're laughing, whether you're feeling broken and in need of healing or whether you're joyful and in love, we must trust God's good and sovereign authority and enjoy the gifts that he gives to us in this season of life. Regardless of our circumstances, we can know that God is always on time, and we are too, as we wait for eternity. Let's pray.
Father, we pray for those who are present today, who are watching online. We pray in particular this morning for those that are non-believers, those that don't know you. We pray that this would be the day of salvation for them. God, we know that you have appointed a time for everyone to die, and we pray that, that we would not take that for granted, and that those who don't know you would turn their hearts towards you. They would recognize that they're sinners in need of a Savior. God, we ask that we would submit to you, each of us, whether we're a believer or a non-believer, that we would submit to you as the God of time, that you have created everything, that we are not in control of our own lives, that you are sovereign, that you are a good authority. And even as we look ahead to eternity as believers in Christ, even as we look ahead to a time when there are no, um, there is no vanity, when everything is as it should be, God, we trust that each season of life that you've placed in us, each circumstance that we're in, both right now and what will, what will occur tomorrow, we, we trust you in that. We trust that as a gift for us to accept, for us to learn from, and for us to grow from as we wait for eternity. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.